Good evening. God's creation, the universe. The Bible tells us some interesting things about it. The world also established that it cannot be moved. Psalm 93 verse 1. Whereas in speaking about the sun, in Psalm 19 verse 6, it says, His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. Now we also read um, that the stars have circuits or courses around uh, the earth. But we never hear that the earth moves or has a circuit or a course or anything else. Now it was taken by Christians everywhere that the sun is stationary at the center of the universe. Until the Roman Catholic Church became far more interested in the pagan cultures of Greece and Rome than in Christianity. And they began looking very carefully at the ancient Greeks and Romans. Now, among the Roman Catholic priests involved was Nicholas Copernicus. He was particularly impressed with Pythagoras and with Plato, who said that the sun is the most magnificent of the gods and should be the center. And one of Pythagoras's disciples, Aristarchus of Samos, decided to draw up a model of the universe in which the sun was at the center. And Copernicus thought, what a great idea. And he started publicizing his story that the sun is the center of the universe and everything else, including the earth, goes around it. Well, the Christians of the time were not impressed. Martin Luther, for example, talked of that fellow who wishes to turn the whole of astronomy upside down. Even in these things which are thrown into disorder, I believe the Holy Scriptures. Now, he didn't have much success in convincing people about his, um, his ancient Greek theory. He wrote a book, but it was very badly written, and he wasn't a good persuader, so it didn't really get very far. But then Galileo appeared on the scene, and he was a good persuader and a good author. And he was uh, a scientist, and he even did work which was useful to Newton in his dividing, devising his laws of motion. But Galileo's big fight throughout his life was against Aristotle's physics. Aristotle's physics was wrong, and some people like Galileo realized that, but he had a very hard time convincing the people teaching it at the 
universities in Europe. And he realized that Copernicus's system would completely wipe out Aristotle's physics. And so he jumped on it and said, here we are, this proves Aristotle's wrong. Now, some of his pupils pointed out that he was also anti-biblical. And uh, he agreed, but he said, in questions concerning the natural sciences, holy writ must occupy the last place. Now, up to that time, throughout Christendom, at least in public uh, speaking, holy writ had, had occupied the first place. But now Galileo is saying, in matters of science, scientists know better than God. And that was jumped on by the atheists and said, hey, we've got proof here that the Bible is not inerrant. And if it's not inerrant, it's not the word of God. Now, um, at the time, perhaps the greatest astronomer alive was Tycho Brahe, one of the greatest astronomers of all time. He set up an observatory with instruments which could measure the positions of the sun, moon and planets about ten times more accurately than anybody before him. And Brahe was convinced that his observations put the Earth at the centre of the universe. And he said, I've got two reasons for believing that. First, that's where the Bible puts it. And secondly, that's where my observations show it is. And he said, the moon and the sun go around the Earth. That's what the Bible says, and that's what my observations confirm. But the planets and everything else go around the sun and they're carried around the sun with it like the planets of Jupiter, the satellites of Jupiter are carried around with it. Now that is a not, it's not a widely publicized model. You've probably never heard it before. The earth at the center. The moon and the sun going around the earth. The other planets going around the sun and being carried along like the moons of Jupiter as they travel around the sun. That is, as far as I know, the only model of the universe proposed which has never been refuted. All the other models that I have seen put forward have been refuted. Now, of course, the atheists and the people who rule science today and those who control the media and want to brainwash you that the Bible is not true and there is no God they are not interested in pointing out this. They're interested 
in pushing Galileo's statement that the Earth is not the centre of the universe and in matters concerning science, scientists, scientists know better than God. But there are well-known, famous, authoritative scientists who have commented on this. Ernst Mach, one of the greatest scientists of um, previous years, said obviously it matters little if we think of the Earth as turning about on its axis or if we view it at rest while the fixed stars revolve around it. Geometrically, these are exactly the same case of a relative rotation of the Earth and the fixed stars with respect to one another. And perhaps the greatest scientist of the last century, Fred Hoyle, said, we know that the difference between a heliocentric theory, one with the sun at the centre, and a geocentric theory, one with the Earth at the centre, is one of relative motion only, and such a difference has no physical significance. So why does it matter to anybody whether the Earth is stationary at the centre of the universe or not? Well, as J.F. Henry pointed out, the possibility that we have a special place in the universe is depressing to the humanist and is to be absolutely avoided. And so, for years we have all been indoctrinated. The Earth is not the centre of the universe. Anyway, the Earth goes around the sun. As uh, A.J. Burgess pointed out, the story of Christianity tells about a plan of salvation centred upon a particular people and a particular man. As long as someone is thinking in terms of a geocentric universe, the story has a certain plausibility, but as soon as astronomy changes its theories, however, the whole Christian history loses the only setting within which it would make sense. With the solar system no longer the centre of anything, imagining that what happens here forms the centre of universal drama becomes simply silly. And now the story which is promoted everywhere, in schools, universities, the media, the Earth goes around the Sun, the Sun goes around the galaxy, our galaxy goes around a group of galaxies called the local cluster, the local cluster goes around a bigger group of galaxies called the supercluster, and, well, the Earth is just a dot spinning around somewhere in all this movement. It's like a grain of sand in the Sahara Desert, lost. Even if there were a God, he would never be able to find it. Now, this uh, story about the Earth hurtling through space, lost in the midst of nowhere, um, nobody has ever been able to prove that, but a scientist called Arago did some experiments using prisms and starlight. 
and he could explain those experiments if the Earth is stationary. He could not explain the Earth if the Earth is moving. He did other experiments with a plate of glass beneath his telescope. He could explain the results he got there if the Earth was stationary, but not if it was moving. The British astronomer James Bradwell did some experiments which he made some observations, should I say, which he could explain. And everybody else could, if the Earth is not moving, but not if the Earth is moving. Now, sometime before that, an Italian, Ruggiero Boscovich, had proposed an experiment which would prove once and for all whether the Earth is moving or not. And everybody said, well, yes, that experiment would prove it, but there's no need to do it. We all know the Earth goes around the sun. We know the Earth's moving. But because of these experiments which had been done which didn't agree with that, the next uh, British astronomer royal, George Biddle Airy, said, well, maybe I should do Boscovich's experiment after all. And everybody had agreed that if he got one result, it would mean the Earth is stationary. If he got another result, it would mean the Earth is moving. His observation said, the Earth is not moving. Now, this was beginning to cause some concern. And the world's most celebrated experimental physicist, A. A. Michelson, decided to do a definitive experiment and prove once or all, once and for all, um, the Earth's motion. And so he designed an apparatus um, called an interferometer, and with a colleague called Morley, he built this at the university in Chicago, and all the scientists of the world were very interested in this because this is the top experimental scientist and everybody was examining his plans and looking at his apparatus and saying yes this will be able to tell us within a very small margin of error how fast the earth is moving through space and what direction it's moving and everybody waited for his results and they were all absolutely shocked when he found out the velocity of the Earth through space is zero and it's not going anywhere at all. Well, consternation among uh, the scientists was uh, considerable and Michelson and Morley themselves were puzzled um, and the other scientists were very upset. For example, Giancoli said, but this implies that the Earth is somehow a preferred object. Only with respect to the Earth would the speed of light be seen as predicted by Maxwell's equations. This is tantamount to assuming that the Earth is the central body of the universe. And Bernard Jaffe said the data were almost unbelievable. There was only one other possible conclusion to draw, that the Earth was at rest. This, of course, was preposterous. And uh, 
This reminds me of J.F. Henry's remark before, the possibility that we have a special place in the universe is depressing to the humanist and is to be absolutely avoided. So, the scientists of the world were looking for an explanation, an excuse, something to explain away the fact that all the experiments show the Earth is not moving, but they desperately want it to be so. Because, well, after all, this was the proof that the Bible is not inerrant. And there was a lot of effort put into finding an answer, and it was eventually put forward by Albert Einstein. He put forward his theory of relativity. Now, his theory says that you can only detect relative motion, so you can't prove whether anybody is stationary or moving. So, just because the experimental results say the Earth is not moving, well, that doesn't prove that it's stationary. Well, that doesn't sound like a very convincing argument to me, but for everybody who wanted to believe it, hey, this explains it. The Earth isn't moving. Well, things have stayed like that for quite a while, I don't know of anybody else who has tried to measure the speed of the Earth through space. I'm absolutely certain nobody would get any research funds for it, and it would not be published even if they did. But what is happening now is that the astronomers, in fact just about everybody, has accepted a very strange theory. It's hard to see how this could ever have been put forward as being in any way scientific. It's called the Big Bang and it's about an explosion. And scientists have watched thousands of explosions. Every single one of them needed something to go bang. and Every single one of them destroyed order, structure and information. But they tell us of an explosion which nobody saw and there was nothing to go bang but it went bang anyway and produced all the material and all the order and all the structure and all the information in the entire universe. So they decided to set up a, a project to find out where the Big Bang Center was, and it's called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And for that survey, they designed very special cameras, um, well, not really cameras, they're uh, called charged couple devices. They don't take pictures, they point this thing at the, at the sky and they have a, a, a computer-driven drive which keeps it pointing to the same area in space all night long and all night long there are the signals, photons, radar waves, whatever, coming in and 
all night long they are being collected on a huge computer system and at the, at the end when they've got all this data they feed that into a computer which has been programmed by people soaked in the Big Bang theory and they tell the pro computer program to interpret these signals they're getting according to the Big Bang theory and uh, come up with pictures of what is supposed to be there. Now of course you will not see any of the pictures they uh, make if you look through a telescope. If you look through the big telescopes like the one at Sutherland you will not see anything like the pictures that they get from these cameras. You will see pretty well what you would see when you look through a telescope you can buy in an optics shop the image will be clearer it may be it's brighter you may see some more stars but it will look very much the same now we all know those marvelous pictures that were constantly being shown you will never see anything like that in a telescope those come from the interpretation of the signals received by a computer programmer. Now I was at Sutherland uh, Observatory a couple of years ago and I asked have you got any pictures you can show from your telescope and they said oh no we don't have anybody here with the skill and the time to make those beautiful pictures. The data they collect won't show you those beautiful pictures. You're going to need a world-class expert in the, uh, in the astronomy, astronomical equivalent of Photoshop to produce those pictures. But what they expected to get out of this survey was an area where it was almost empty, where the Big Bang happened, and then spreading out from this empty area it should get denser and denser as you get further away from the Big Bang. Well, it was quite a surprise when they revealed their first photograph. They divided the, um, the sky up into four quadrant, quadrants and they, did, they put all their instruments on the first one first and then they were going to do the second, the third, the fourth and the first quadrant results came out and to everybody's surprise the earth is here and it's right at the center of a series of what they call great walls across the cosmos dense areas separated by less dense areas and these get fainter and they get dimmer as we go into the distance. There's no sign of any open area where the Big Bang could have happened. So, and, and how come the Earth is at the center of everything? Well, they then carried on with the next quadrant, and uh, that was revealed not very long ago. 
and oh my goodness, it's just the same. The Earth's still at the centre, there are still these uh, walls of lots of galaxies separated by not very many. Now here you've got far fewer observations and now there are even more observations in the first one so the pattern is very clear in, in the first quadrant. In this quadrant it's very clear there is no empty area where the Big Bang took place and again it's clear the Earth is the centre of it all. Now, there's another disturbing thing. The, uh, the astronomers have found, if you point a, a telescope, and you can, you can see things in the visual spectrum, the light that we can see. You get points of light, they're stars. They found that if you point a radio telescope at the sky, you can get points where there are radio emissions. And they found that if you point a telescope uh, with a charge coupled device in the infrared, you can get other points in the sky which are infrared emitters. <coughs> and then two scientists, two astronomers, uh, Arno Gonzales <coughs> and Robert Wilson, Divided, decided they'd look for interesting points with a microwave detector. So they built this big micro microwave detector and they pointed at the sky expecting to find points of microwave emission and to their enormous surprise they found everywhere they pointed this thing they got a constant signal saying just above absolute zero. And they plotted this out. To understand this plot, in the middle, you are looking straight ahead. You're looking from down there to up there, and that's from down there to up there. As you move to the sides, you move further out. By the time we get here, we're looking right round at the left-hand side and when we get there we're looking right round at the right-hand side so that point and that point are the same. And this is a representation of the sky all the way around and it's orientated so that the Earth's ecliptic is, is the long direction. And they mapped it out and it's just so even. <coughs> And they had no idea what on earth this could be. Now, of course, if they'd, re if they'd read their Bibles, um, they would have said, oh, this corresponds with the waters above in Genesis. <coughs> but, of course, nobody takes Genesis seriously, so they hadn't a clue what it could be. And then two of the people working on the Big Bang said, oh, this is the echo of the Big Bang. Well, surely an echo needs something to bounce off. The Big Bang was supposed to be nothing in the somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and that exploded. And what was the 
the explosion to echo off. Well, we... Let's brush over that and just say, well, their calculations show it should be a, have a, a black body temperature distribution, and that should have been a lot hotter than almost absolute zero. But they brushed that aside, and they said, but look, there is a problem, because the universe that we construct from our Big Bang, there are great clusters of galaxies. And then there's big, wide open, empty spaces, and then more clusters of galaxies. It's a lumpy distribution. So the echo ought to be lumpy too, because there would be all this material getting in the way, thinning out the signal where there's uh, a lot of material and letting a strong signal go through. They said, this really doesn't fit in. It must be that the accuracy of the readings isn't good enough. Now, these were to a small fraction of a degree. But they decided to send up satellites that could take pictures to a thousandth of a degree. And they still showed just about no pattern at all. So then they sent up other satellites and they were measuring it to ten thousandths of a degree. And now they got a pattern. Now this looks pretty impressive, but these changes in colour are in ten thousandths of a degree. But they weren't happy. The pattern they expected was just random blobs all over the place. But instead, there's an axis there. And what's more, that axis is directly along the line of the Earth's ecliptic. Now, that is a real problem. It was called the axis of evil, because this is going to do a great deal of damage to their philosophy. And it looks as if there is a connection between this background radiation and the earth and lots of people started trying to explain it and coming up with excuses in the new scientist we have a paper the universe lines up along the axis of evil despite steadily improving measurements the axis has stubbornly refused to vanish if only we knew why the axis was a peculiar alignment of features where we would have expected nothing but randomness. From the rotation of galaxies to cosmic expansion, everything points in one direction. This could be not just an axis of evil, but an axis of everything. And then another paper in New Scientist. The axis of evil stretches across the cosmos. For a long time, part of the community was hoping that this would go away, but it hasn't. Other scientists noticed that spiral galaxies were aligned and were spinning with respect to the same axis of evil. The rotation axis of 93 quasars were aligned with each other parallel in spite of the trillions of miles of distance between them. 
what this evidence is telling us is that all the objects in the universe are geocentrically orientated, putting us in the centre of it all. Well, this is just another of the many observations which show that the Big Bang is not true. But the Big Bang is the best in field theory for the secular humanist establishment. And they decree that a theory may not be discarded until another alternative theory acceptable to them, meaning it must be a materialistic theory, has been accepted. So everybody knows the Big Bang theory is not true, but nobody's allowed to say so. Nobody's allowed to publish a paper saying so until they can come up with a satisfactory theory to them uh, and then they will say, all right, yes, the Big Bang theory is wrong. This new theory is right. Well, what's obvious is that they are totally unable to find a theory which will explain the observations. Of course, there is a theory, but they're not prepared to even consider it because the theory which will explain it all is in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, I would like to suggest this is the summary of the chapter and then we get the rest of it. Um, the word for heaven here is the Hebrew word uh, ha-shamayim, which is in the dual. It means there are two aspects to this thing, like a pair of sunglasses or a pair of scissors or a pair of trousers. They're in the dual, and so is ha-shamayim. And the earth, ha-aretz. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, for quite a while in this account, the only material we hear mentioned is water. We go to the next verse, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, here we've got a problem, because nobody knows what light is. The scientists haven't got a clue. They know some things about how light behaves. They know a lot about how light behaves. They find that for some experiments it behaves like a wave. Some experiments it seems to behave like a particle. But there aren't any experiments where it behaves like the wavicle they want to try and pretend it could be. So science doesn't know what light is. And God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness 
And God called the light day and the darkness he called night and the evening and the morning were the first day. Now there's no light there. There's no sun. There's no star. And light on its own travels and it travels very quickly. If you have a burst of light here it will be thousands of kilometers away in a second and somehow this light defines time it effectively defines a day how does it do it well i can think of two possible ways you could have a mirror and the light bounces from one mirror goes to the other mirror and comes back and it takes one day to go that far or it could be in a circuit some kind of circuit around the universe and it takes one day to get all the way around the bible doesn't say that but it seems like something like that must be happening because it somehow defines day and night and uh, it forms a clock which allows us to now consider time and since it was only created on the first day it makes no sense to inquire how long was the spirit of god hovering over the waters because there was no measure of time then we can only now start measuring time and god said let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters and God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so and God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day well there are several places in the Bible there are two that I know of in Isaiah there's one in Jeremiah I think there's one is in Ezekiel where it says God made the firmament of the heavens and stretched them out well if um, if we put this together we find we have this mass of waters that the Spirit of God has been moving over in the middle of this he creates something called the firmament of the heaven separating the water below from the water below above and he stretches it out and we've got the waters below the firmament and the waters above in any stretching out process the temperature falls and it's interesting to note that there is a limit that one could stretch out if God is going to follow the laws of physics which he created with matter and that limit is you can't go beyond absolute zero so the biggest he would be able to stretch it out is until the waters above reach a temperature of absolute zero 
so, as I said, well, Isaiah 42 verse 5 is one of the places where God created the heavens and stretched them out. Okay, the next verse. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. So, by the end of the third day, we've got the waters below, transformed pretty well into the earth as we know it today. It's got dry land, it's got trees, plants, flowers. Then we have got the expanse, firmament of heavens, and then the waters above. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and it was so and God made two great lights the greater light to rule the day the lesser light to rule the night he made the stars also and God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So, first thing, we can now be confident this firmament of the heavens which he stretched out is what today we would call space. It's the place where the sun, the moon and the stars are. And he sets them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth for, for signs and for seasons, days uh, and years, to divide the day from the night. Could this be because the light he set going in the first place is outside the waters above, so we can't see it anymore? Could it be that it is so dim in comparison to the sun that we wouldn't see it against all the other light. Um, but anyway, for whatever reason, that initial light, it may still be there, but the sun is set and the firmament um, and the stars and everything are set to be a much clearer sign and to give light upon the earth. Now, in the Bible we hear a lot from here on about the earth, about the stars, the sun, the moon, and everything that else that he created. But I can only find one other place where it mentions the waters above. And 
that is in Psalm 148, and it's calling upon the whole of creation to praise the Lord, and we see in uh, verse 3, Praise him, ye sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. So, the waters above the heavens are still there, of course, but we don't hear any mention of them again. And we might ask, what's beyond the waters above? And the only place that I can find in the Bible where it um, uh, where it mentions this oh. Oh, sorry the only uh, place I can find which tells us what is beyond the, the waters above Psalm 8 verse 1 O Lord our Lord how excellent is your name in all the earth you set your glory above the heavens well, we've got the glory of God above the heavens, above the waters, above the heavens. Um, but we don't have anything else that's specifically said to be above. But there is a, a verse in Revelation, Revelation 4 verse 6, which I find very interesting. It says, and before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal and it strikes me an interesting speculation could this sea of glass be the waters above on the, the outside of the waters above and they are so cold they're frozen solid they're like a sea of glass well that's only speculation, but I am looking forward to the day when I know as I am known and don't just see through a glass darkly, and it'll be interesting to see if that is the waters above from the opposite side. Well, there is one other thing the Bible tells us about the heavens. It tells us in Jeremiah 31, now the whole chapter is an assurance to Israel that even though they have annoyed God by their sin and their turning away and their rebellion, he will never forsake them. And uh, the whole chapter is saying that. And in verse 37 it says, Thus saith the Lord, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. And the whole chapter is assuring us that he never will cast off all the seed of Israel in spite of all the things they've done. So this is a guarantee that the heavens will never be measured. How do the astronomers measure the heavens? Well, they make some guesses, they make some assumptions, 
They put forward some hypotheses, they make some more assumptions, some more guesses, and they come up with their theory on, on distances to stars. Well, what this is telling us is that we will never be able to make the right assumptions and guesses and hypotheses to be able to actually get a real distance to the heavens. So when the astronomers tell us the galaxies they're showing us pictures of are 50 billion light years away, there's one thing one can be confident of. They're wrong. Whether the real distance is more or less, I don't know. It's almost certainly vastly less. But we will never know because we will never be able to measure it. We will never be able to make the right assumptions to measure it. But if we listen to what um, the Bible says, we would immediately see, well, when Penzias and Wilson pointed their detector at the sky and found a constant signal everywhere of almost zero degrees, they found the waters above. Because all the way around the whole sky, there are the waters above, and having been stretched out, they're probably very cold, and their results show very little above absolute zero, just a couple of degrees above absolute zero. So, there's no mystery about the, um, the background radiation anymore, and there's no mystery about why there should be an apparent connection between the, uh, this radiation, which is really the waters above and the earth. Originally, there were one mass of water. And when God separated them out, stretched them out, it's not surprising that an axis is evident in both. We've got the ecliptic on the earth and we've got this line which probably shows the direction that God stretched it out. No surprise at all. Completely inexplicable on the Big Bang Theory. And when we come to the Sloan Sky Survey, it shouldn't surprise us at all to find the Earth in the middle of everything. And it shouldn't surprise us to find a, a, a band of stars and then a very very few stars and then another band of stars not quite as bright and then another uh, and, and another band and another less dense area well it shouldn't surprise us because if we consider the structure of the universe as God tells it is the way he says he made it we've got the earth with the sun and the moon, I haven't put them in because I don't know the scale. Unless you've got a measure of the heavens, you've no idea how big to draw them in. So probably they're somewhere in that central dot where the earth is. And then we've got stars 
We don't know exactly how they are laid out in the firmament of the heaven, but they're somewhere between the earth and the waters above. And now, if we consider the light coming from just one of those stars, well, from that star, there will be light going in all directions. There will be one ray of light that comes straight to the earth and we'll see that star. But the other rays of light will be bouncing off the waters above, which are probably frozen, and you'll find one of those rays will be reflected straight to the earth, and now we'll see a reflection of the same star that we got the light from directly. So if we, we can see the star, and we can see a reflection. Now that reflection is going to be much less bright because the light has traveled much further and we may not even see that first reflection but then we take another ray of light which missed the earth on its way back comes and hits the waters below again and reflects back and now we see another reflection this will be very dim. It's very unlikely you'll see it with the naked eye. You might well see it with the telescope, yes. But this will look very dim because that light has travelled a huge distance. But the star it came from is not very far away at all. And we can consider pretty well any direction that the, uh, the, the light shines and it will reflect off the waters above, reflect off the waters above, reflect, reflect, and eventually one, this beam of light will reach the earth. But it will now be very, very dim. You'll see it with one of these charged coupled devices turning all night long to the same place, picking up all those signals all night long, being amplified into your computer, Yes, you'll see them, but you'll almost certainly not see them with the naked eye. Now, it's interesting to see what happens when you've got mirrors around you. It used to be quite common to find lifts where you had a mirror on one side, a mirror on the other side, and you would look and see something like this, where you've got... Um, the person and the reflection, and the reflection coming from the mirror behind, and then another reflection coming back, and another one going from backwards and forwards, and you see the image disappearing into the distance, getting smaller, fainter, because at every reflection, you lose some light energy. You lose light energy because the wavelength becomes longer, so the light shifts towards the red end of the spectrum. That doesn't necessarily mean it looks redder, but if you look at a spectrum, then the lines in that spectrum are moved towards the red end, and from the, in from the infrared, um, they, well, you move, move out into the infrared and from the ultraviolet they move in. So the, the colour stays pretty well the same, but the pattern is shifted to the red end. Now, 
This used to be a common feature in films. Perhaps the most famous was Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. And you can see here, he is quite close to the first mirror, but he's quite a long way from the mirror behind him. So you can see he and his first reflection are close together because it's further to the next one. The reflection from the one at the back and its reflection from the they're closer together. So you get them disappearing in pairs into the distance. The distance between the images depends on the spacing between the mirrors. And it also, the, the image you get depends on the angle between the mirrors. You've got here one scent bottle, but it looks as if there are eight. And here we've got one girl. But the arrangement of the mirrors has her disappearing into the distance um, at a pretty even spacing. Now here we've got a picture of that same girl, just one girl and one light, but she's standing close to one mirror and far away from the other. So you can see all the way you get groups of two because she's close to that mirror and there's quite a distance between them. So these are spaced out and the further you go the more images there are and they're still in these lines getting further away and they're getting dimmer and dimmer as they disappear into the distance. So you can't see very far. If you had a telescope, you would probably see quite a few more. Now, what does that do for what we would see through the Sloan Sky Survey? That's picking up the reflections and the reflections of the reflections, the reflections of the reflections, but the Big Bang Theory is interpreting that as the fainter the image, the further away it is. So the Big Bang Theory says these are all stars going vastly far away. Whereas what we're probably seeing is we're seeing the original stars, a reflection Reflection of reflection, reflection of reflection, reflection of getting, as you go further away, they get dimmer and less clear. And this doesn't tell of stars thousands or billions of light years away. It's reflections that have gone backwards and forwards across the universe many times. Now, there isn't any other theory that I've come across that comes anywhere near explaining the observations. What the Bible says, the model it put forward, explains them all very well. Why do people refuse to look at the Bible? The Bible always has the answers. Mm -hmm. The Bible is the only truth we have. Mm -hmm. Why do people refuse to accept what the Bible says? Well, 
as Corinthians, it says in 1 Corinthians 2.20, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Well, does anyone have any questions? Um, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, the rainbow. Explain the rainbow to me. Explain it to you. Yeah. Well, you have droplets of water, usually falling in the rain, and as they fall, they are spheres, spheres of water. And the sun shining through them is refracted. And so it comes in um, and you get a rainbow. You, just like if you look at a prism, you get all the colors. But only one of those colors to, comes to you. And all the, all the raindrops, which have that angle between the sun, them and yourself, they will all give you the same color because the others you won't see them. Somebody away from you will see a different color from that same point. But the next ones, they will also be um, producing a spectrum like the prism. But from a different angle, you'll now see a different color. So as you look, those drops you're looking through, the rainbow, the, the colors, will be spread out across the rainbow. But actually, from each drop, it is producing a whole spectrum. But only one color comes to your eye from each drop. And because the drops are spread out, you get the, the, the spectrum where you get one colour from over here and another colour from over there. But in fact, each drain drop is giving a whole spectrum. <coughs> okay. Um, it always, always happens after the, the rain. Why? After the rain. There is a rainbow. Well, it, it happens after the cloud has moved away so the sun can shine. But where the rainbow is, is showing, there's still rain there. Often you're not in the rain, that I have been, I've been in the rain when the rainbow has been there, but you don't usually look, you're getting out of the way. But when the rain has moved past you, and the clouds have, uh, have moved so that the, the uh, raindrops are getting the light then you can see it. But you can see it when you're in the rain if, if you have the right conditions. I've, I've seen it quite often. In fact, the best rainbows I've seen is when I've been in it. Because then you can see a rainbow in the direction of the sun. It's all around the sun. And you can see the secondary bow behind you. But you need, you can see it on the side where the raindrops are. And if you're in the rain, it's possible to see them on both sides. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I understand. understand. Um, with the earth, 
um, centric view. You have a 24-hour day and with it rotating, it makes sense. And then we've got a year season cycle. If the sun's moving, the 24-hour day, it's, it's going right around the earth in 24 hours. And <clears throat> what speed is the sun then going? At pretty well the same speed that the universe is rotating. Okay. If the whole, it, it would appear that the whole universe is rotating. And it appears that it would need to do that so that it didn't collapse. If the whole universe was stationary, then you'd expect it to implode. Okay, then with the seasons, Okay, it's going around 24 hours. Is it changing its... Is it slightly wobbly, like while it's spinning? So that Good you get point, but the... The Earth has certainly been knocked out of alignment. And it is now at an angle. So as things go around it, then um, you will... Uh, you will find differences. Um, exactly how the motions of the Earth are, it's not particularly clear. To me, I haven't studied it, but the Bible says the Earth hangs on nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if it hangs on nothing, I can imagine it having some swaying or rocking or whatever and it certainly appears to have been hit by a meteorite which would have caused some tilting with some rocking and it is moving back to equilibrium. Um, exactly how much nodding or twisting or whatever is going on, if any, I don't know. But there must be some movement because it has been hit by a meteorite and it is moving back to its position of equilibrium. That, that curve can be plotted. Um, that's how we know when the flood was. It was four and a half thousand years ago. Um, but the but the exact motions of anything we can we could only tell if we could stand outside the universe and look in yeah. because to measure it. as we can measure we can only measure, measure relative motions so the only person who can stand outside the universe and know exactly the motions going on is God so we are dependent on him now what he has told us is sufficient to deduce that model that I outlined more details than that such as the distances we are not in a position to work out and as far as distances are concerned, we're told we never will be able to. So we are in a position someone like, somewhat like Paul, where he said, I see as through a glass darkly, 
but one day I will know as I am known. We, we can get a pretty good idea as if we were looking in a faulty mirror. But it's, it's a, an image which is probably good enough, well it must be good enough because if it wasn't good enough, God was, would have given us more clarity. Um, but as the Bible says, if everything God did were to be written down, the world wouldn't be able to contain all the books. So we have only a limited amount of knowledge. We can work some things out by observation and other things we'll never really know. Uncle Philip, when us at school, we were given a book published in the 1960s, Don't Die in a Wundu, and it was showing us how to find directions for the stars and all of this sort of thing. And uh, we still use it. I mean, I've been using this, this book for years, and, and the stars still there. Now, if we're looking through space at millions of light years, and these other planets are zooming around, and there's so many light years away, how on earth is it that every night you go out and the stars are in the same place? It, it just doesn't seem to make sense unless it's geocentric because how on earth could we be spinning at such great speed and these stars out there, what speed must they be going if they're as far away as they say? So how on earth are they always in the same place every night that I can find my way through them? Yes, I remember the story of a, a navigation instructor for the bomber pilots in the Second World War and the first lesson he would give to the navigators forget everything you learnt at school don't think the earth is going around the sun the truth is everything goes around the earth and unless you realize that you won't get back home after the bombing raid All, all navigation on, on Earth, whether it's for the land or, or sea or air, it's done on the assumption the Earth is stationary and everything moves around it. How do the waters above create the signal that that large telescopic... How do they create the... Create this, the, uh, the signal that that large instruments The waters above don't... Oh, they create the, the microwaves system. See? Yes, so on that chart where you showed the two uh, opposite cones, the Earth at the center, I believe, and, um, it sh and you said that the waters above are creating that. How, how did that occur? Well, the waters above are simply reflecting the light from the stars. So you've got a quadrant here and a quadrant here, and you've got these rings of, of dense, uh, well, they call, they call it um, galaxies. Um, they're galaxies because they're so dim, they must be very far away. And to see them, they must be vast numbers of stars forming galaxies. Um, if you've got a wrong theory, you get wrong conclusions and you get wrong ideas like galaxies billions of years ago. Um, the 
waters above don't do anything to the light from the stars except reduce it. Every reflection on any material, you lose some of the energy. Every reflection on any material, you lose some clarity. After a couple of bouncings about, you may very well find the image so broken up that it looks like a lot of little dots instead of just like a clear image of one star. And looking at all these little dots, they say, oh, each one of these dots is a star. It must be a galaxy. Well, it may be just that the image has been broken up by these reflections. I, I don't think the waters above would be a perfect reflecting surface. I don't think they were intended to be a perfect reflecting surface. And uh, it looks like they reflect pretty well. But after you've had a few of these reflections going across the universe backwards and forwards, they're probably going to be pretty hazy. You saw even in the pictures in the mirrors of that girl, these are expensive mirrors, they're good reflecting, but it's still getting dim and hazy in the background. And so the same thing will happen with these stars. So, um, the reason why it looks as if they are in circles, there are images in between because not all the light is going all the way across the galaxy, some is, is going on to shorter distances. So you do have some material in between those dense <coughs> rings, but they're only dense because there are a lot of reflections. And all the waters above do is reflect the light and degrade the image. It's the stars themselves that are causing those images. Thank you, sir. If you have uh, like some frozen water and you have a microwave detector, will you get microwaves from frozen water? It will tell you the temperature. Sunday evening, half past seven. There's a there's a program on the on the radio, uh, Stella and Pump Planeta, and uh, the professor very good and Doctor Mati, very good, Doctor, yeah, very good and Professor Mati Hoffman. And uh, they talk about uh, stars and planets. Talking about the Hubble telescope. And then listen to it for three, uh, three years ago uh, already. You see, it's very interesting. And um, uh, so many times you go to the Sutherland, look at the planet, the planets. And uh, here in Katyan is the, uh, we call, call it, um, Planetarium? Yeah, okay. <coughs> and I visit that uh, a couple of times, just for instance sake. 
because I'm retired, so I can do the walk all the way there. <laughs> but it's very interesting. This is a very interesting pro program. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, look, until recently, all the astronomers had was their telescopes. Yeah. And looking with the very best telescopes, they gave us stories about the moon, the planets, satellites of the planets. And this was put forward to us as we've established this, this is astronomical fact. Then they got the probes, space probes. And they found out that a lot of what they thought about the moon was wrong. Yeah, that's good. They, a lot of what they found out. So now they know something about the moon and you can probably believe it. You can believe most of it. When it comes to the planets, they had told us lots of things about them. The explorer and the voyager went, mm. and I remember when voyager was on its way across the planet, everywhere it went, it shattered all the theories they had. All that the astronomers had been saying about those planets was shown to be wrong. And uh, the, I've forgotten his name, he was the chap who was in charge of the imaging team and he was always on the, on the media talking about this. And um, when it had when it had passed Jupiter and it had completely shattered all their theories, he said, well, we've now got to get into instant science because all the science we had has been shown to be wrong. So this instant science was dr quickly dreaming up um, a theory to explain the observations that he actually saw and why what they had expected was wrong. And he said, but at least when we get to Saturn, there will be no surprises there. The rings have to be as they are, otherwise they could not be stable. The probe got there, it got to see, to see the rings, and they were utterly and completely different to everything that they'd all said. They all showed that they are not stable, they cannot last very long, they cannot have been there very long. So all the way through, Voyager was shattering all their theories. But at least now, they've actually got photographs, they've got measurements, and you can pretty well believe most of what they tell you about the planets. But now, as far as the stars go, well, they're much further away than the planets. They're much harder to observe and make observations. If, without going there, they were so wrong about the planets, how right do you think they're going to be about the stars? And they will never know until they can send something to the stars, and they never will. So they will never know and you can carry on listening to their stories, they can tell you the 
nicest stories you can imagine. And nobody can ever prove them wrong. <laughs> yeah. Royal uh, Warrior 1 or 2 got missing, do you remember? A couple of years ago. Warrior 1 or 2 got missing. Well, I think it's gone out of radio yeah, range. Like it's gone out of range of yeah. the instrument so they can't yeah. see it anymore. Yeah. I'll tell you that I'm watching every Sunday for three years now that program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very, very interesting because you knew. Well, I know that. I didn't know. And they can tell me anything and I. And you'll believe it. And sometimes, sometimes not. If they, if they tell you about the planets, you can probably believe it. Mm. If they tell you something about the stars... <laughs> they uh, talk about the moon and, and the helicopter on the moon. <laughs> well, they have sent probes to the moon. I think the Russians have got a, um, a station on the moon at the moment. On the, on the far side of the moon. So I, I, I think much of what they're telling you about the moon you can, you can believe. Yeah. You know, the, the guy that is uh, <coughs> in charge of the program, his name is Mars. Mars. Any Mars. <laughs> mm, yeah. yeah. Okay, what was your question? I was wondering, how do you explain the cycle of the year? Because if the sun's going around the earth, then we have to And if, how do you explain the year cycle? Because, yeah, no, this, the year, because usually what they tell us is the sun, and we uh, going around the sun, and the earth is spinning on its axis, which makes the day, and then going, us going around the sun makes the year. Right, well, um, there have been prizes offered for anyone who can prove that the Earth goes around the Sun or spins on an axis. And nobody has been able to claim one of those prizes. Nobody is able to prove whether the Earth turns or not, whether um, it goes around the sun um, or not, mechanically. Now, there have been several theories on uh, planetary motion. For example, uh, a great deal of what goes on in, for example, water or in air, things move in spirals, up and down. Now, if the, um, if the sun and the planets with it are moving around in a spiral, this will give the result you're talking about. If the Earth is rocking, it would give uh, a similar uh, result. Um, 
But there may be other theories, which I don't know about. So I can't, I can't tell you all the details. I can't tell you. Um, I can't tell you much about the maths of the universe with its, its main centre of mass around the edge. There, there is a very thorough analysis by um, Barber and Bertotti and that seems to be a very um, sound analysis. It predicts the field of gravity, including uh, centrifugal um, forces, Coriolis forces, the other forces which are fictitious in Newtonian mechanics. Using an analysis where you're looking at the entire universe rotating around, rotating around the Earth, then these are not fictitious forces. They're real forces and they predict the behaviour of the Earth, the Sun and the planets. Um, there are people who consider that this mathematics is sound and is probably correct. I don't know if that's true or not. But there are ways of explaining this which, if any, is true or not, I don't know. What was the biggest experiment or proof that you saw for the geocentric universe that changed your perspective to be one of looking at the universe as geocentric? Did you ever look at the universe as having the Earth spinning somewhere in space? Or oh it yes, I used to believe that. I, when I was an atheist, I believed all these silly theories. And I believed that uh, anything the Bible said was rubbish. So you don't bother to see what the Bible says, it's wrong. I've now come to exactly the opposite conclusion. You can almost guarantee what the scientists say is nonsense and what the Bible says is dead right. So um, So was it the reading the, the scripture that um, brought you to this conclusion first or was it the scientific evidence for it? Can you pinpoint what it was that first brought you to this perspective? I think it, it's hard to remember, but I think they came roughly the same time. But it was the number of experiments which um, which showed the Earth is stationary that really struck me. I was particularly struck by what Einstein said in his book uh, Relativity: The Special and the General Theories. And he said, we know that the Earth goes around the Sun. But the most 
sensitive measuring apparatus has not been able to detect a trace of this movement. And this is a strong argument in favour of the theory of relativity, which shows that you cannot tell whether anybody is moving or not. Now, I thought this is ridiculous. He says, we know the Earth is moving. But his his theory, his uh, relativity, proves that you can't know whether something is moving or not. So he's got a contradiction in that, in that one paragraph. He says, we know the Earth is moving, but he's proved that you can't prove it's moving. And I thought, hey, this is really just totally unacceptable. And if all the most sensitive instruments show that you cannot detect the Earth is moving, then on what basis can you say the Earth is moving? You know, it, it all just made such nonsense <coughs> of all the secular theories that it was clear to me the Bible is the only, it's the only field, it's the only theory in the field which is standing. The others have all fallen. There's nothing but what the Bible says. I was always slightly confused when you were, not confused, but you know in Genesis account, the waters above the waters, so to speak. Um, because wasn't there perhaps a, within close vicinity to the earth, like maybe, I don't know how many kilometers, just outside maybe of the gravitational field, wasn't there a, 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 a sphere, a, what, what you would call it, an water, envelope of water? Water canopy. A water canopy. Uh, just an idea, I'm not contradicting. Look, that's... So that, sorry, that become what you're doing. Did you... Uh, that become confusing with the sun and the moon are in, the, in between the water. But anyway, so, would you comment on that? Yes, look, there has been a lot of speculation about the conditions before the flood. Now, I have seen a PhD scientist seriously put forward the idea that the Earth was surrounded by a sphere of metallic hydrogen, transparent, but um, effective in keeping the temperature on the Earth constant and protecting the Earth from external radiation. Now, I don't know what evidence this person put forward for this, but he was a serious scientist and he put this forward. I've also come across others who said, well, there was a water vapour canopy which served the same purpose. It, um, it was protection against radiation and it also kept the temperature in the Earth uh, pretty uniform so that there was vegetation all over the earth um, I don't know what evidence anybody has put forward for these two things I do know there, there have been people who've suggested 
that there was a water vapour canopy and that collapsing caused Noah's flood. Um, I'm not convinced of that. And if you consider what the Bible says about Noah's flood, it says God closed the door of the ark and that same day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the, heaven, the windows of heaven were opened. Now, some event probably broke up the fountains of the great deep, we're not told what it was. I think there's a lot of scientific evidence that it could have been a large meteorite. I can see that a large meteorite could break up the foundations of the great deep. I can't see how a water vapour canopy collapsing could do it. Now, a meteorite impact would, all the calculations show, it would have thrown up thousands of millions of tons of water as water, thousands of millions of tons of water as steam, which would have condensed and come down as water. And it would have raised um, a tsunami three kilometers, um, five kilometers high, three miles high, and it would have been moving at almost the speed of sound. And that would have washed away mountains, it would have washed away continents, and it would have caused everything we see in the, in the geological record because there would have been very rapid erosion of material and rapid deposition as the speed of the waves moving around the world reduced, it would drop material. So I haven't really had heard any convincing arguments for the water vapour canopy. But it's, it's possible, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. And it, but it doesn't say anything about a meteorite, but I believe there's very good evidence for the meteorite. But I'm really have to think about these waters that are above the, above the sun and the, now at the end of the universe. I mean, it's a mind-boggling idea. Well, look, the, the flood has nothing to do with them, because Psalm 148, is long after the flood and it, the psalm is, psalmist is calling upon them to praise the praise ye the, the Lord ye waters that be above the heavens they're still there and we know they're still there because they're still giving the almost zero microwave reflections 